Hey guys, it's Albert. We've got a fantastic show coming for you this week. We've got the takeaways. We've got a great guest to talk about two very relevant teams that he used to work for. We've got Fab's DraftKings segment. And as always, we wrap the show up with all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. Week 12 is almost in the books as I record this. Not quite in the books yet. Almost. We'll see if they actually get the game between the Ravens and Steelers played. Um, As of right now, it's on. We'll see if that continues going forward as we approach 340 Eastern time on a Wednesday, which is when week 12 will conclude. And we're also going to be looking ahead to week 13. It's the Albert Breer Show Appreciate all of you guys coming out, and we've got a fantastic guest to talk about a couple of teams that I think are sort of hot topics in the NFL. We've got Fabs coming in with all of his weekly DraftKings DFS and fantasy advice, and we've got all your questions in the six-pack as we always do. But we'll start with the takeaways, and my first takeaway coming out of Week 12, Carson Wentz looks broken and look you can make every excuse in the world for him and 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 i have over the last couple of months there's been a lot of injuries the offensive line's gotten old it's gotten hurt the other night he didn't have andre dillard who's been out all year he didn't have brandon brooks who's been out all year he didn't have lane johnson the skill position players the eagles have not done as good a job as they they did a few years ago of stocking those positions, efforts to fix the receiver position have not worked out. You look at the tight end position, they've got good players there in Ertz and Goddard. Can they keep them on the field at the same time? And so there's those issues. There's coaching issues. Um, There's the fact that they lost Frank Reich, that they lost John Filippo coming out of the 2017 Super Bowl season, and maybe they haven't adequately replaced those guys. So I take all that stuff into account. Like, you know, there's it's a very different situation than Carson Wentz was in in 2017 when he made a very real run at the MVP before tearing his ACL. That said, and we're going to get into this with our guest, I still think a lot of this has got to be on him. When you get that second contract, when your salary moves into that stratosphere, like the rules change. And, you know, when you're on a rookie deal – Teams have a chance to put stars around you. Teams have a chance to build depth around you. When you're making $34 million a year, the dynamic's completely different. And when you are making that much money, the team is implicitly saying to you, we believe you are good enough to fill holes. We are good enough. We believe you are good enough where when things go wrong, we feel like you can still make them right. And, you know, I I look at the way quarterbacks have been paid and how the numbers got there and how it sort of happened through the Brady-Manning era. And you think about some of the things that Tom Brady and Peyton Manning did over the years, some of the players they won with, some of the deficiencies they fought through um, around them on their teams. And, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's, it's fair to ask for more, just like it was fair to ask Peyton Manning to outscore everybody when he had deficient defenses, just like it was fair to ask Tom Brady to win without true number one receivers. I think it's fair to ask those things of quarterbacks who are making more because when you take that contract, that's what you're signing up for. You're signing up to be the guy who is sort of the fixer. And so I think that's, you know, with Carson Wentz, like things have gone wrong around him, yes. But that's the first part of it is that you're being paid now to be able to be good enough to fix the things around you. 
without the team having to spend all kinds of money to do it. So that's the first thing. And then I think what's resulted from that is, again, a player who just looks like he's broken right now. And it looks like it's in his head. And you see, I mean, I've talked to coaches who feel like he's squeezing the ball, like he's thinking too much, like, um, you know, you watch him back there and he's a little bit of a sitting duck. And I, I think we've seen all of that stuff manifest over the last few weeks. It seems to get be getting worse and worse. And I'm actually, I'd actually advocate, and again, we're going to talk to our guest about this. I'd advocate for the idea of maybe shutting him down for the rest of the year and getting Jalen Hurts in there, not to see what Jalen Hurts has, but maybe to develop him a little bit and maybe give Carson Wentz a little bit of a break here and say, you know what, like we're not doing ourselves any good. We're not doing you any good by wheeling you out there anymore unless they feel like he's mentally strong enough to deal with it because these things can leave a mark from a confidence standpoint, from a physical standpoint. He's just not in a very good place right now. And there are going to be some big decisions to come. I think he's safe because his contract sets up that way probably for the next two years. But I think everybody now around him uh, is going to be part of the decision-making and trying to get him right again. It's Doug Peterson. It's Press Taylor. It's Rich Gangarillo. It's all the offensive coaches. It's the offensive personnel around him. Um, you know, I think when we get to the offseason, you know, you're going to see some pretty big decisions that are going to need to be made. And I believe Jeffrey Lurie is going to sort of tell his people, consider everything. All right, takeaway number two. Uh, Kendall Hinton started an NFL game at this time last week. I don't think I could have told you who K- Kendall Hinton was. Um, he is a practice squad receiver for the Denver Broncos. He was one. He's back to being a practice squad receiver again. Uh, and as much as like I think that there was an element of appeal to that game um, on Sunday between the Broncos and the Saints, and maybe some of that appeal was like sort of rubbernecking a 12-car pileup. Like what does an NFL game look like when a team doesn't have an NFL quarterback in there? Um, and I think there are some things we can learn about it, primarily how hard it is to play that position at that level. I think you got to kind of take your hats off to Kendall Hinton for the job that he did. And I know he only had one completion, I believe. I know it looked like a mess for the most part. Just the fact that he got through an NFL game, though, at a position that he hadn't played full-time, I mean, in three years, four years, I, just the accomplishment of being able to have finished the game, I think, to me, it says something. And so good for Kendall Hinton being able to handle it the way that he did. Like Good for the Broncos for trying their best to make it work as, as, as much as they could. Um, it's just a tough situation, you know, and you look at everything that's happening with COVID in the league and all of that. Um, it certainly like raises the question, you know, the Broncos advocated for the game to be moved to Monday. And as it turns out, the way the timeline worked, I think at least some of those um, quarterbacks would have been cleared to play. And so, you know, I think, you know, kind of part of this is, well, you know, are you worried it was going to get worse, that the outbreak was going to spread, there was, that, that an outbreak was going to happen? Like, what were you worried about here? What, were your, what was your primary concern? I know they're going to tell you that um, the, the, the games only get moved for medical reasons, not for competitive reasons. Uh, the motivation to keep that one there and not move it to 5 o'clock on Monday, I thought, I think it's interesting if you dive into that a little bit. Takeaway number three, on the other side of that field, I think you have maybe the best team in football in, in, as from a roster standpoint, the New Orleans Saints. Um, like once again, just dominant on defense. And I think we're seeing now how they can win different ways. Taysom Hill did not play well. And, like, I don't know if this is going to extend over the next couple of weeks. 
I thought they did a lot to help him um, his first week against the Falcons. Uh, I think once you know a coach like Vic Fangio got tape on him, you know it was going to look a little different, and it did look a little different. And you know I think we saw a how good the Saints are from a roster standpoint. Again, I've said it before. I think that's the best roster in football. I don't think there's a real hole in that roster. So we we saw how good the Saints are. Um, because they're able to win a game like that, 31 to three. Now, of course, there's the quarterback situation on the other side, but they're able to win. You know, getting that sort of performance from the quarterback. I'd be, yeah. I, I sort of wonder if you maybe want to get a look before Drew Brees comes back at Jameis Winston. Now, um, I mean, like you have to make a decision on your future with Taysom Hill, but at the very least, you know he's going to be on your team next year because of how his contract sets up. So I wonder if at some point it might be worth it just to get a, a little bit of a longer extended look at who Jameis Winston is because he's in a contract year and because I believe that your roster is good enough where you can win with them. Then see, the third thing is I think the Saints need Drew Brees to be healthy to win the whole thing, which is obviously their goal. Their goal. They're in this very short window now where they've got a lot of guys on rookie contracts. Um, they've got a cap, cap issue coming down the line next year. Um, and so this is very much a win now team and I think they need to do everything they can to make sure that Drew Brees is not healthy on December 15th or December 20th that he's healthy when we get to January 4th which is the day after the regular season ends and that he's ready for the playoffs they should be a high seed maybe the number one seed in the NFC of course having that bye would help too takeaway number four I, I looked at two teams going in two different directions on Thanksgiving, and I know it's been almost a week now since these two, team plays, two, two teams play, but the Washington football team looks so far ahead of the Dallas Cowboys, and it's stunning when you think about the way we thought about these two teams coming into the year. On one side, you had a team that was in a win-now position with a bunch of stars who were either entering the prime or in the heart of their prime, guys that they, now they've invested financially in, like all of that. And they've had injuries, Dak's gone, everything else. But there was a team there that should be able to withstand some of the injuries that I, I think was built in a certain way where um, you should have, based on how they've paid guys, like they, they should be able to at least be competitive, um, you know, in where they are in their building process. And then you had Washington, which was a complete teardown. And the fact that Washington looked as good as they did and the way the end of that game looked. And the long runs by Antonio Gibson at the end of that game, it just it showed to me just like it looks like Washington got it right in hiring Ron Rivera right now, and it looks like Dallas got it wrong in hiring Mike McCarthy. And that fourth quarter highlighted all of it. Uh, you saw a Washington team that was competing their ass off. You saw a Washington team that was locked in. You saw a Washington team that had talent on its roster that was procured in different ways. You had Chase Young, of course. I could have picked Chase Young, but you have him on one side of the ball. On the other side, you've got Antonio Gibson, who had 20 carries, who they like projected as a running back. He had 33 carries at the University of Memphis um, in, in his career at the University of Memphis. 20 carries on Thanksgiving alone. So you see them finding guys in different spots, um, finding guys in different ways. So you see like the upside of the roster, where you know like they're 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 doing a good job of kind of like starting to build a foundation there. And, and 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 you see the effort. You see guys playing a certain way. And I just, I don't know. I look at the whole thing, the totality of it. And watching that game, that fourth quarter, Washington had a look of a program on the way up. Dallas had the look of a program on the way down. And finally, my fifth takeaway, final takeaway for the 
week, Tom Brady and the Bucks fall to seven and five. I saw some encouraging things though. And I thought like this versus some of their wins, actually, like, I didn't think it was the worst thing in the world. Um, they came back, they didn't stop fighting, they were locked in. And I'm wondering if they're starting to change a little offensively. And it's funny because I was talked to some coaches over the last couple of weeks that you know, might have been in Minnesota with Brett Favre, that were in Denver with Adam Gase. And one thing you learn talking to those people, you know, early on for, for the, with those guys, like there might have been a, all right, we'll, we'll do it this way because this is the way everybody here is used to doing it. And then, you know, we'll sprinkle in some of the stuff that the quarterback's been doing. And, you know, eventually – like those play in those places in Minnesota, and it was a little easier in Minnesota because they had Daryl Bevel, who had coached Brett Favre before and had had the system that Favre was used to running. Um, yeah, but I think in both those places in Minnesota and then in Denver with Manning, they came to the realization it's got to be the quarterback show. We got to do we got to do right in Minnesota by Brett Favre, in Denver by Peyton Manning, and I think that that there are signs that maybe that's starting to happen in Tampa, and I. I, I was on the like earlier in the year. I was kind of like of the mind, like yeah, you know, I guess it makes sense. Like I remember talking to Bruce Arians about this. Yeah, it makes sense. Like it's easier for the other ten guys in the huddle if we maintain the offense, maintain the language, maintain things the way that we've always done them, and have Brady learn rather than having the other ten guys learn. Well, now I, you know, I'm looking at that take and I'm thinking to myself, maybe I got that one a little wrong. Maybe I should have looked at that one a little differently and I think to maximize you know now what I've sort of learned especially after talking to these guys over the last couple of weeks that again were with Favre or with Manning to get the most out of the quarterback you sort of have to do it his way and to leverage the let to leverage what he's been over the course of his career you have to kind of bend to him and so I think it's incumbent over the last month of the season for the Bucks to do that and to bend to Brady and to make Brady as comfortable as they possibly can Clearly, you know, like I said with the Saints, like they're in a win-now position. They're a 43-year-old quarterback and a roster that's pretty stacked. Uh, there have been points this year where, you know, I know having talked to coaches, it feels like the Bucks are running plays. They're not running an offense. And the running game doesn't marry up really with the passing game, which affects you in play action. I think bending to Brady can fix a lot of those things. And so... I would advocate, that's my last takeaway of the week, I would advocate to for the Bucks if they've started to bend to Brady, keep bending to Brady. I think it would really pay off. And we will get to our special guest right after this. All right, we're going to welcome back in one of uh one of our favorite guests, a guy who has been real helpful to the show over, over the last couple of years and um, love having him on. He's a former uh, Eagles executive, former Browns. I can't remember if your title was president or CEO. I always mess that up, uh, Joe. But uh, he is Joe Banner. Joe, welcome back. Good to be on with you, Albert. Great, great to see you. Is it CEO or president? I can't remember. Well, CEO Wait. at Browns and president at Eagles, but go. Joe works go. fine. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Um, well, I, I want to start right there. I want to start in Philly with the Eagles and um, – you know, I, I think obviously what we've seen um, at this point, um, like from Carson Wentz, doesn't look good. And you know, I, I think obviously all the all the attention that the idea that Jalen Hurts could get into the game um, has gotten the last few days is kind of indicative of that. He takes two snaps. Just your observation right now 
Um, and he's near the end of his fifth year. So I think we have a pretty full picture um, kind of where the Eagles are at on Carson Wentz and, and, and where you see them going and going forward at the quarterback position. So I actually think this is one of the hardest questions anybody's ever asked me, even though at the moment it's <laughs> yeah. the big, the big topic for obvious reasons. I mean, it's startling to see this kind of regression of a top player that appears to possess all the skills he needs to be really good and is obviously playing really poorly, just comparing him to himself. <laughs> Let's yeah. forget history and everybody else. Now, you know, the wide receivers aren't what he needs them to be. The line is obviously decimated, but it would be a mistake to think that that's, that's it. And if that was fixed, everything would be fine. It's not what we're seeing. We're just seeing indecision and hesitation and lack of confidence. And at times he seems to let loose. At times he seems to be afraid of getting hurt, you know, after the couple of injuries he's had. Um, I, you know, I, I, I'm hard pressed to give up on him. Maybe I'm just stubborn because I really believed in when they picked him and he played really well. But if you put the tape on right now without knowing the history, you wouldn't even consider him a draftable guy or even a potential starter in the NFL. So how do you reconcile those two things? I mean, I, I don't envy them having to figure that out because it's crucial. And they've obviously invested a lot of money, which is not a minor element of what to do as well. Um, for me, the Hurts thing is a little, I see that a little differently than other people. I think that they have to rebuild Carson's confidence mm -hmm. if they have any hope at all. I don't think bringing Hurts in for a series of plays or a quarter or even a play, you know, really helps that. So either they've given up on Wentz, which I think would be a mistake, and let's start playing Hurts and see what we got. Or they really believe they can rebuild Wentz to what he was and then just put Hurst on the side for the moment and you'll figure it out later what, what his role is and what he can do and how he can help you. Do you, like, like let's just start here. Like, in general, do you remember ever seeing a player – whether it was in Philly, Cleveland, whatever, where there was regression like this that was hard to explain. And, you know, maybe it wasn't a quarterback, but, like, is there any story out there that you can remember from your own career where you guys dealt with maybe a player regressing, a player stepping back? And and if, if so, how did you guys deal with it? Yeah, I mean, nothing consequential. I mean, players aren't the same every year, so we certainly had players that, seemed to be on, you know, one tra trajectory and then it flattened out or sometimes even curled back a little bit and didn't keep going the way you thought it would. But, I mean, we're talking about a guy that was legitimately in the MVP conversation a couple of years ago. Right. We're talking about a guy that started this first game as a rookie, as quarterback, without any snaps during training camp. <laughs> that just, that should be by definition impossible to be but what we're seeing right now, but we're seeing it. So it's not impossible. It's, it's happening. I can't, I can't not only just my experience, my viewing of the league, I can't even think of somebody that, you know, was at this kind of a level uh, and then regressed in, in this way. It's, it's uh, to me, it's inexplicable. Is it like, I mean, if you were the Eagles right now, would you dive into the psychological part of it? Cause I got to tell you, like, that's like what I'm getting from a lot of guys who are coaching against him. Right is they see a guy who's pressing. They see a guy who isn't seeing it very well. They see a guy who like seems to be trying too hard at times. Like how much would you be looking into the psychological end of this? If you were the Eagles, I, I know you, you already mentioned off the top, like you want to build his confidence back up. So Hertz could, you know, wind up like, like, like Hertz could, you know, wind up hurting that, you know, obviously um, how much would you look into the psychological end of it? A lot. I mean, I'm looking at anything I can come up with, and that's near the top of my list. I mean, it, 
You just don't lose your physical skills like this abruptly. And listen, they got to get the offensive line healthier, back or better. They got to get better weapons for him. But to see what he can be, um, I'm I'm literally brick by brick, kind of breaking it down and rebuilding with him. And I'm sitting down and say, listen, you you can't feel good about what's going on. We obviously don't feel what's good about what's going on, but we still believe in you. So we need you to just agree that we're going to explore anything and everything that could possibly unlock the answer to what's going on, and that will include you know, bringing in some people that have some expertise in, in sports sciences and sports psychology and stuff like this. And, you know, it will be one of the things we're going to try. I'm not telling you, you know, that that's it. But but we, we want to explore everything there is that could possibly get you back to where you were. And if he says no, then that would be just totally shocking and tell us a lot. Right, right. So um, how much is like the, like, obviously, there's the business end of this, too, which is that you're married to him contractually at least through next year. And I would say like based on the way the contract's set up at least the next two years. So like how much of this is now we got to look at what's around him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and, and, and maybe that means everyone in the organization who's touched him is under evaluation. Does it, does it go to that? Um, it does. Yeah. I do think that I do think there's a little more flexibility in the contract than people are portraying. Um, okay. By the way, bad situation, significant consequences, no way to avoid that. But, um, you know, the, the, um, there's, there's opportunity. Let, let's assume somebody out there felt for some compensation he's worth not giving up on. <laughs> I mean, we know teams out there that need quarterbacks. And, mm -hmm. you know, three years ago, he was probably a top five to 10 quarterback in the NFL. Um, so, there's ways to restructure that contract. First of all, there's offset language in it, which means whatever somebody else signs him and pays reduces what the Eagles would owe him. There's some ways to convert some of the salary in a way that the Eagles could actually pay it to reduce some of the costs to an acquiring team. I don't know if all that would come together enough that if you really want, are ready to move on, uh, would create a tolerable cap consequence in 2021 that would make it worth doing. But there are ways to at least mitigate what's on paper right now that could possibly either help them with their cap or make them at least possibly marketable, which he isn't based on the contract right now unless some of these things were done to it. Yeah, I mean, I would think like, so then you would like like offer to eat money like yeah. if you really wanted to move on, that sort of thing, right? Like, and it, you'd be doing it just to get the relief from the contract. So you would really, really have to be out on him at that yeah, point. Yeah, you'd, right, exactly. You have to have decided he's not the guy we're moving on. We're going to find the next answer. We want to get out of this with as little price cap wise as we can possibly. Okay. And like the other thing is like this sort of interesting about the contract part of this is like, I, I sort of look at it like, so, you know, you have three or four or five years, however long to decide whether or not like a guy you drafted that high is the guy long-term. And in those three or four or five years, you have a chance to build around him in a different way because you've got your quarterback at a much cheaper rate than a lot of other teams do, right? Like that's fair. Mm -hmm. So then I, I like, I feel like I almost feel like, and I, I'd love to hear your take on this like that, at that, like once you get to the point where you have to make that decision, that decision isn't just, can he be the same guy? It's, can he do more with less because you're going to by definition have less. Right. Yeah. So I get where I'm getting, where I'm getting here, Joe is like, I sort of look at it and it's like, all right, like, yeah, like they, they've had injuries. Like their offensive line, you know, having lost Andre Dillard and Brandon Brooks and Lane Johnson, you know, and uh, like like all of those issues that they have, 
like that's obviously going to affect him. But to some degree, when you pay the guy that much, you're like implicitly saying, we believe that he can make up for holes on our roster. Do you think it's fair to look at it that way and say, like, once you pay a guy at that level, it's the time to make excuses for him is over. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. That's exactly how you have to look at it. And I think any team well-managed is going to look at it exactly that way. I mean, it's contract average is $32 million a year. So you have that much less to spend on other positions. So he has to be that much better than some quarterback on a rookie contract or making $20 million a year, or you aren't going to beat the other teams that are in that position. So he doesn't just have to get better than he is. He has to get good enough that that salary can take up that much of your cap and you can still put together a roster that you can win with. Now, what we saw three years ago, I think most people would have said, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll make a few right. sacrifices here and there. What you're seeing now is not even close. So you're making a very good point. He doesn't have to just get a little better than he is now. That still is not going to support that contract. He has to get enough better that he's making up for deficiencies that you know you're going to have because of what you're paying him when you did the deal. Which is crazy. I mean, it's just like, I don't know. I always think of like Brady as the ultimate example of that who could all, and, and I think Peyton Manning too, like they could make up for, like you would lose guys. And I remember there was the year that, um, that, that Peyton Manning was throwing to Blair White. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there have been years where Brady got by with a lot less. Um, yeah. And so I, I've always just sort of like, I don't know, like it just feels like this is the sort of situation. This is why you pay a guy like that. So you can stay competitive when things do go the wrong way, like they have for the Eagles from a roster standpoint. Um, how do you think like, cause you've known the guy longer than anybody in the NFL. There's been a lot of noise over the last couple of days about the way Jeffrey Lurie is processing. This is digesting this. Um, and that it could lead to some changes. Um, mm -hmm. Like, how do you think knowing Jeffrey as well as anybody else in the league would, how do you think he's kind of like taking a look at all the investments that he's made and primarily, of course, the investments he's made in his head coach and his quarterback? Yeah. So first of all, he's not missing this in any way. He's, he's only in the league because he loves football and he wants to try to win Super Bowls. I um, mean, other owners may have different motivations. That's him. And, and he's smart and he's reasonably objective as, you know, we all are a little bit flawed when it comes to being objective all the time, but he's reasonably objective. So first of all, he's incredibly frustrated. He's totally shocked. He legitimately went in the season thinking he had a pretty clear path to win the division. Then, you, you know, hopefully everybody's healthy and you have a chance to make a run from there. Um, and, um, you know, he's got to get over that and then step back. And, and as I just said, be really, really objective. I, He's a combination. He is um, loyal and patient and at the same time recognizes that, you know, if you've been doing something for four, five, six years and you still don't have it as well as it can be, you know, there's some reason for it and it isn't particularly good. So Howie's obviously been at the job a long time. Doug's been there now four seasons. Um, he's probably feeling like, you know, they should be in a better place. So the real question is, are we in this place because of circumstances that were kind of beyond our control and some momentum that just got going as things started to go bad? Remember something? They've only won one game against a team that had their starting quarterback play. They right. had three wins, but two of them were against backup quarterback. One was against a third string quarterback. Right. So he's really, he is sitting there probably very torn uh, between uh, people that he really believes in and he's backed and he knows have the ability uh, and what he's watching on the field and trying to reconcile that. I don't think he will make knee-jerk decisions. He'll be very pragmatic. He'll be very thoughtful. Uh, he'll be very prepared. 
Um, and, you know, honestly, at this point, my bet is he hasn't made up his mind. He's not taking anything off the table, but he also hasn't decided that this has just gone so far south. I've got to make changes. I think he's probably going to watch what happens here over the rest of the season and prepare for the possibility of making changes. But he will be very calm and very pragmatic about it in the end. Do you think – so you think everything's on the table then? You know, I, I really can't picture him making a change as general manager, honestly. And I okay. think he'll – hesitate to make a hit change at head coach but i'd be surprised if it was totally off the table at this point okay i'm what speaking from my knowledge well, of jeff you know, not any not any insights or inside information yeah yeah i mean but you know him i mean yeah. you know him and, and like i know you were i think you were you were gone at the point when andy got fired but he fired andy reed right like he fired chip kelly yeah. um and before that like 100 years ago he fired ray rhodes um like, what do you think will go into his decision-making on the head coach then? Because I think for every owner, it's a little different, right? Like, some owners react to public pressure. Some owners, like, look into their locker room. Like, where do you think, you know, where do you think Jeffrey would look for answers on that? So, first of all, mostly inside first. Yeah. Um, he's not somebody that he has relationships in the league and he has people he respects that he will talk to, but... He has a lot of confidence in himself and ability to judge this. And he knows that by being with these people every day, he has more knowledge to base his decision on than anybody else. So uh, I think he will talk to others before making a final decision. And there's some of the kind of, you know, retired iconic names that, you know, you and I could throw out there. I don't know exactly which ones at this particular moment in his life, but people out there he's developed relationships with before he finalizes the decision. But I think he'll do a lot of, uh, introspection and uh, and try to kind of have a preliminary answer in his own mind before he starts to reach out and solicit other people's views. Yeah, it sounds like like you also. I mean, it's sort of like what you want in an owner, right? Like a guy mm -hmm. who's patient yet engaged, and like who cares, but maybe isn't overly reactionary. So, like yep. I guess what you, it sounds like what you're saying is Jeffrey's doing the like like the way he does it. Like that's the way an owner should do it. Yeah, I think he'll approach it the way, you know, if you were sitting there, I was sitting there and saying, here's how we would think would be the best approach. I think that's exactly, you know, what he's going to do. Okay. Um, what would you do with Carson? I mean, you know, we said it earlier. I am, I am sitting him down and I'm really having a heart-to-heart -heart and seeing if he's really willing to put in the work to really get to the root of what's causing this. Um, and if he is, I'm starting tomorrow and I'm, he's, I've got his back and we're fully engaged in doing everything we can because – you know, what he has shown he can be, that he clearly isn't at the moment, is the hardest thing in football to find. And I'm not just giving up on that. If there's a way to continue to work on it, I'm not giving up on that unless I feel like he's he's just not willing to be that objective and step back and do what it takes to get to where he used to be. Yeah, so it's like basically like you want to at least give yourself like, I mean, you have an off season, so you want to maybe use a full off season and try to figure out where like, like just like more than anything else like identify the problem yeah but i don't want to throw out the uh and i'm not just trying to be uh, dramatic here for effect i mean if if i was uh you know john elway or if i mm -hmm. was uh, even bill belichick and the eagles had a way to uh create a, a contract with carson that for a year or two was pretty reasonable and gave me kind of a free look with the upside that he has and didn't really want a whole lot of compensation, just really wanted to go out from under the contract. I'm not crossing that off the list as, as quickly as some who have looked at the contract are. Um, but again, I'm personally exploring everything I can to get him back to where he was before 
pursuing anything like that. Okay. Um, all right. Like, it's just, it's so interesting because I just like, you know, and, and, and it's I like, you know, Philly, like, like how, how people are reacting there now. So it, it's just it, like, like the idea of where this could go and kind of all the things that are on the table. It's mind blowing thinking of it, like based on where we were, even like 15 months ago, when I think a lot of people, myself included, thought they might have the best roster in football and a great young quarterback. And it looked like they were set up for such a long time to come. It's just, it's amazing how quickly some of these things can flip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why we say that you, you've got to be able to draft well or sustained success is never going to happen. And uh, unfortunately, it doesn't take very long of very many mistakes to see yourself going from a very strong roster to one you have a whole bunch of questions about. Right. Okay. So let's get to the other team that you worked for because I did want to ask you about them. Mm-hmm. And the Cleveland Browns are eight and three right now, which I believe they've already, that, that would be their, like, even if they lost every game the rest of the year, be their best record in 12 years. Um, it at least looks like Andrew Barry and Kevin Stefanski. Um, and Paul DePodesta and that whole group have sort of, I, I think, settled things down there and made that place healthier, made that place more level at the very least. And we don't know where they're going to be three years from now, but at the very least, it looks like they've made that place healthier. Mm-hmm. What's your observation having worked there, having worked for that ownership on what's happened there? Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I think they've got uh, strong people, both in terms of their skills, but equally important in my mind in terms of character. Yeah. Real hardworking, just really solid people, really driven people that want to win. And, you know, that's where it starts. You've got to hire the right people. They've got to have the right motivation. I think they can finally say that. I mean, I, I look at them as a team that's made a lot of progress, is on the way up. I'm not sure I think they're quite to eight and three if we kind of look at things and break down kind of how the season's gone, you know. Mm-hmm. But I think they're heading towards a team that can consistently be that. And you've got to give those guys a lot of credit. It was it was a very upside down situation and it's hard to overcome those perceptions. Once the league is perceiving you as not having any idea what you're doing and you're trying to sign free agents and yeah. have people you draft excited about coming to your team and recruit a head coach. That's a very, that's got a lot of momentum to it. It's very hard to turn around. So I give them a lot of credit. Um, you know, the owner who was obviously, you know, making changes left and right quickly, even in some cases that, that it didn't seem like were justified at the time. Um, you know, seems to have maybe taken a breath and put some trust in the people that he's hired here um, and in su- supporting them in a way that a management team like that needs to be supported. So, you know, and for the fans of Cleveland, I mean, it's, it's great. I mean, they have suffered so long and they care <laughs> so much. Uh, it, it's uh, I'm glad to see them finally having some fun and getting some payback for, for their, their loyalty. How much of it do you think is like the owners really buying into the people that they have there too? I know, um, you know, I, I think like one of the things when they hired you was, you know, that you, you know, you believed, um, and looking at things analytically, you know, obviously, you know, they hired Sashi, um, all those years ago, Paul, Paul D. Podesta has been there for five years now. Like, do you think part of this too, and maybe the Haslam's willingness to step away a little bit has been that they really, I, I guess, buy in to what the guys that they hired are trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, listen, all we can say is it's, it definitely looks like that. And as you say, we'll, we'll know in the next really three years if that's, the, if that's really the case. But it does look like he's got a team he enjoys working with, he trusts, uh, maybe willing to defer to their judgment in cases where he may or may, may not agree. I remember talking to Jimmy when, before he'd actually hired me, before he was officially owner. 
And uh, I remember saying to him, there's so few owners that are successful in the first four or five years that they own a team. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons to explain that. And, um, you know, th that's kind of the pattern in the league. It is an occasionally an exception. Um, but for the most part, there's a learning curve and a building of relationship curve and other things that contribute to success. So, you know, maybe that's what we're seeing now. Uh, or maybe, you know, the, the old Jimmy will pop up at some point and we'll eat our words. Well, why is that then? That's an interesting comment because I like it's interesting to me because like the one I thought of that, that did have success early on was Jerry Jones, and then <laughs> he spent the, the twenty five years after that thinking he had it all figured out and it's cost yeah. him. Um, like, why is that? Do you think that like yeah, owners no, have you, such a problem early, like right after they buy teams? You actually just gave the perfect example for at least what my theory of that is. Yeah, the key to an owner's success in the NFL is his ability to hire the right people. That's really mm -hmm. it. Set the bar high, hire the right people and get out of the way. Not literally, but, you know, trust them to do what you hire them to do. And when you're a new owner, the ability to really uh, source references, talk to people that will really tell you the truth, really get to the bottom of researching who are the right people to hire is incredibly difficult. Yeah. I mean, I was not an owner, but when I first got in the league, it was really hard. And after a few years, I started to develop relationships. So, you know, I'll tell you the truth. You tell me the truth. Let's be honest with each other, which is not, as you know, the modus operandi in the entire league. So you need to just see how the league works. You need to learn, like, what are the keys? What differentiates success from failure? But most importantly, you have to gain relationships and insights on what you're looking for in your hires. And then you improve your chances of getting the hires right dramatically. I mean, I've, I mean, I remember, uh, you know, Bob McNair, who I thought was a really bright, good guy and struggled for a while to get the team on the right track. You know, Steve Ross is a really bright, good guy, but has really struggled to get his team to where you think he'd be able to get. And a lot of that is just increasing their ability to know what they're looking for, be able to do the research to know that they're hiring the right people. And when you're first in the league, you know, everybody's uh, out to get everybody and everybody's trying to win and they're all type A personalities. It's really hard to kind of source references and know who the good people truly are versus who has a good reputation. Right. So like you like, like they don't like, they may be friendly to you and shake your hand, but they're not going to help you win. <laughs> like yeah, they're not. I mean, I'll tell you a story that I really haven't told them. I and the first coach Jeff and I hired was Ray Rose. Right. And uh, we had a number of people tell us how great he was. He was the perfect hire. We had one person, I won't name them, but who was actually in San Francisco with Ray and said, it'll be a huge mistake to hire him. And we actually convinced ourselves that the person in San Francisco was just trying to keep Ray and not telling us the truth. And the other people were, you know, just people are reluctant to be negative about people that they know and maybe even like, especially to we're complete strangers to them at that point. Um, now, three or four years ago in the same situation, we would have been much better able to kind of do additional research beyond getting two divergent opinions, or in that case, maybe five divergent opinions to have our own answer to that question instead of just guessing who to trust. But at that point, we didn't have the relationships or the knowledge about how the league worked to really dig to the next level and really do a fuller analysis of whether that was the right answer or not. And it turned out okay. I mean, he was there four years, made the playoffs mm -hmm. twice, missed it twice. But we were really guessing. We were kind of walking blind and totally trusting instinct as opposed to really being able to get answers. Yeah, that's interesting too. Cause like, so was it like specifics that the people in San Francisco told you that came up, and you're like, oh, they were right. Like, was that yes. what it was? Or yeah, again, I'm not gonna 
Oh, yeah, you know, the primary right, but, person that told us that, and I'm not intending to bash Ray. We, we, did, we had four years. It was okay. Right. I don't think we thought it was a disaster. I don't think he thought it was a disaster, but it obviously wasn't all that we hoped it would be. And, and yeah, you, you just really need to be able to dig deeper and talk to some people that you trust, that know. And, uh, you know, listen, coaches don't give other coaches bad references. It just doesn't happen. Right. It's right. just, so, you know, it's, it's the, uh, you know, it's a silent code. <laughs> so you need so, to find it. So you need to find it in like the front and, t- and like a team's front office. You need to find it with the bike. It's just people well, who've been, is yeah, that where you were example, finding? I mean, our next yeah. hire was Andy Reid. Yeah. I mean, I talked to every agent that had players that Andy had directly coached. I talked to players that no longer were there that had been coached by Andy, as well as, you know, talking to people that were in Green Bay and talking to people that left Green Bay and talking to other people that, just knew the league really. So all of a sudden I had 20 sources, most of whom I thought would tell me the truth and some of whom I was sure were telling me the truth versus the first hire when we really had nobody. We were just kind of trusting our intuition on who to believe and who not to believe. Was there anybody uh, like you remember with Andy like this stuck out? Like, like is there anybody, I mean, because it was obviously positive. So is there anybody you can remember like a story you heard on Andy that really stuck out then? Well, all the that stories process? on Andy were, were great for what we were looking for. Remember, he yeah. had never been a coordinator. So right. there were eight other teams looking for a head coach, including, by the way, the team he was working for. Right. So that was all completely positive. I mean, we had a lot of people that were nervous. I think it's too early. Are you sure? He probably needs a couple more years. He's never been a coordinator, never stood in front of the whole team, that kind of stuff. Um, but we weren't getting people that saying, well, you're crazy. You know, who, you know, why would you be talking to him? They were, they were balanced. Here are the pluses. Here are the minuses. The minuses were mostly around just thinking it may be, you know, premature. Right. Uh, but our attitude was it's so hard to find a great coach if we find him. But for the first year or two, he's not the best he could be. That's a great hire. <laughs> right. We didn't really care about the timing. We cared about the outcome. That's so funny because I remember talking to the Rams about that when they hired McVay. And the point that was made to me was we loved him. We thought he was a star, and he's like, "Was it maybe a year too early? Maybe like we had that thought in our mind." But, he said, but the the whole point was, this guy's so good. Like we feel like if we don't hire him now, somebody will next year, and we won't get another shot at him. So we better and, take him now. Yeah, which I thought was way, an interesting way of looking at it. You know? Yeah. And listen, I'm taking zero credit for this because I'm sure I was one of thirty people they called. But Kevin Demoff actually called me and wanted to know the story of how we hired Andy and why we felt safe doing it and what were our concerns. And this ex- actual conversation came up. So, you know, he was doing his research and being very thorough and realized there were actually some analogies between the two situations. And you're right, came to the conclusion in the end that if it's a little early, but we're right about how special he is, we will have no regrets. Right. Um, before we get to the next thing, I, I, I'm just wondering now, I know we went down a rabbit hole there a little bit. Is there any coaching candidate in this cycle coming up, the 2021 cycle that you're really impressed with that if you were running a team right now that you would want to talk to? I have to tell you, I've been pushing Matt Rule for the last three or four years with extreme confidence, and I don't have any replacement. I have the list like everybody does of guys that should be in the mix. I do think, and I've been saying this for the last couple of years, that the league should become a lot more open-minded about college coaches. You know they have the leadership skills that are so hard to find. Um, the rest of it, you know, you can surround him with the right people. Or he can surround himself with the right people if needed. And, the, you know, there are college programs that are developing good track records like, you know, Matt did. So my search wouldn't be restricted just to current NFL employees. I'll give you one. Like I, I, I just somebody who put rule on my radar 
um, a couple of years ago, put Matt Campbell on my radar from mm-hmm. Iowa State and said, like, this is the next one. And yeah. so I don't know. I don't know if it'll happen, yeah. but it's another one of winning more with less leadership, like kind of can command and develop relationships. Like, I, I just think there's, you know, that was one name that kind of came up. Um, yeah. All right. That's the last, definitely one of the guys uh, that people should be evaluating. Okay, last thing then I want to get to with you, and and I, this is something that I wanted to ask you about, just because you've been, you know, I've seen you tweet about it a, a, like a little bit. Um, the cap, and we don't know for sure what's going to happen with the cap. New television deals could get done, could affect all of this, but right now it looks like the cap's going to go down and could go down by as much as I think twenty three million dollars. How do you think that's going to affect, like globally? How do you think that's going to affect? the months of March and April in the NFL and the way that people value free agents, the way that people value draft picks. Like how do you think that, that, that you know, what's in front of us right now with a cap, with a potential cap shortfall is going to affect everything? Yeah. Well, two things. First of all, I think the cap will not go down as much as people are saying. So that will help most teams. And I also think that if you look at it, there's a lot of teams with a lot of money they can push forward from this year into next year. So I don't think the situation is as dire as some, although clearly we haven't been in a situation where most of the league will have to make decisions with the cap as a huge part of their decision-making for a long time now. So if you have a lot of cap room, you are facing a huge potential upside opportunity. If you can be really smart with it and play the market correctly, because we're going to see some teams re-sign guys at huge deals. We're going to see some key guys sign huge deals early. That will be worth it. And then we're going to have a whole market of players that are not going to be able to get as much as they thought or probably as much as they deserve in this marketplace. And if you can pick that smartly, um, I think, you know, there's some of the teams, I mean, the Dolphins is the first one comes to mind that appear to be turning things around, have a huge amount of cap room, are starting to get some identifiable needs as opposed to like everywhere. Um, It'll be a huge opportunity. So, I think agents are going to be much more worried about uh, not taking a deal in the first wave, not knowing what the next wave may look like and how much money will be left or how many teams are left interested in them. So I think we're going to see even a bigger rush of contracts signed really quickly. And then players in which there's going to be opportunities to get some really good deals on that are quality. I'm not talking, you know, pro ball, A plus players. I'm talking about players that really matter though and really help you uh, that will be available at prices that will surprise people. Okay, so like I got two questions off that. Number one, why do you think the cap won't fall as much as people think? Well, you mentioned it. I mean, they, there there are meaningful opportunities in stadiums that are open that will create new revenues, existing revenue streams that are going to go up, uh, and the possibility that either TV or streaming deals that you know will you know have increases in them or even in some cases be new streams of revenue. You know, 55% of which will go straight to the cap. I mean, media revenue, 55% the players actually get, even though the mm-hmm. overall deal average is less than that. So um, the only way I think that the cap does go down as much as projected is if we're looking at another year in which they can't count on full stadiums and um, we're, we're facing the possibility of even some moderate uh, revenue shortfalls based on, you know, health issues that may be a lot better than they are, but aren't completely, you know, off the table and therefore affect next year's revenue streams in ways that would be harmful. Um, so it's it's mainly based on things that we know that are out there, you know, built-in increases in revenues uh, combined with the really TV and streaming deals that I think have a good chance to be factored in by then. Okay. The second thing is on the free agent market. And you mentioned, like, you think there's going to be a good market for 
smart teams that can identify the right players. Uh, how much of a bloodletting do you think there's going to be with veterans? And like, how bad do you think it's going to get? Because I, I would think like you're, you're going to have like your normal like you know veterans that get cut, and then I, I like I almost feel like there are going to be teams that are going to be kind of borderline like in cap trouble. Um, that maybe use it as a reason to get rid of some guys. So do you think that the free agent market is going to be sort of at a saturation point where there's going to be a ton of players out there and maybe that has a, maybe that's just a factor in why there will be better deals out there for teams? Yeah, I mean, remember the basic of uh, <laughs> capitalism and the NFL cap is supply and demand. Right. So we're going to have a lot more demand. I mean, we're going to have a lot less a lot more cap room and yeah. a lot more players available. That's not yeah. a good scenario for players, which is why I think some people jump on contracts earlier. Mm -hmm. Some people may take extensions with their own teams that aren't what they were hoping for, but they think it's better than hitting the market. Um, and I think there'll be some strategic opportunities for smart teams to pick up players. The other thing, which factors into what you're saying, I mean, if I'm a veteran now and a team comes to me and wants me to take a pay cut, you know, a lot of players previously had an attitude. I most rather go someplace else than take a pay cut here. Yeah, you know, I've been giving you everything right. I've got for the last eight or nine years. I mean, that's going to be a really risky thing to do now. Where in the past you could probably count on landing someplace and at least be in pretty good shape. That there are not going to be that many seats at the table before you could be sitting there and not have a seat. Right. Like it's like that sweat equity thing, right? Like, like yeah. I remember. I remember like when Mark Ingram went to the um, went to the Ravens and I remember somebody in New Orleans telling me, um, you know, I, I think Ingram got like what it was like 12, uh, like 12 million over three or something like that in, in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I remember like somebody in New Orleans telling me, well, we were willing to pay him more than that. I said, well, why didn't he take it? He's like, well, because, you know, he's got pride and he invested a lot in this place and he felt like you know, it was a little bit of a slap in the face that we weren't willing to pay him for what he had done for us. And that's fine, you know, yeah. but that happens sometimes where guys feel like I've put enough investment into this place that I deserve something back. I'm worth something in this place. And they're almost willing to go somewhere else at a cheaper rate to prove a point. And maybe you yeah. see a little bit less of that. I think that's what you're referencing, right? Yeah. Well, listen, I think it's scarier, but listen, players are very prideful. And, uh, you know, one of the tricks in negotiating NFL contracts is trying to do it without creating emotion. Right. Because the story you're talking about, and I've seen it before, and, you know, once you get emotion into the negotiation, anything can happen. You can outbid somebody, you can still lose a player. So you want to try to keep it as calm and positive as you possibly can if it's a guy you really want to bring back. All right. He's Joe Banner, former Browns executive, former Eagles executive. Joe, you want to tell them where they can find you on social media and everything else? Yeah, it's... It, Jay Banner, 13. But uh, it's better here. Just tune, in, <laughs> just tune in here. All right. Well, we always appreciate you coming out, Joe. Uh, appreciate the time. My pleasure. Good talking to you. All right. Thanks to Joe. He's always great. We're going to jump right into our fantasy segment now and bring in the original author of the Stardom Sidum column, over 20 years running. He is brought to you here on the podcast every week by DraftKings. We are going to get his fantasy stardom sit and we are going to get his DFS uh, bargains and fades for week 13. God, I can't even get the number right anymore. Um, he's Michael Fabiano of SI.com. What's up, Fabs? What's up, man? Crazy week, right? I mean, nuts. like everything's getting turned upside down. 
right. I typically, you know, run my waivers, uh, put in my picks on Tuesday nights. So now I don't have to do it until tonight, which is Wednesday. Uh, I'll be watching a football game <laughs> at 1240 in the afternoon yeah. on Wednesday. Uh, very strange. Yeah. So let's start there. Like, and, and look, we're, we're going to full disclosure here. We are recording this. Like, like, uh, Fab said, it's uh, Wednesday morning on the West coast where he's at. It's Wednesday around lunchtime on the East coast where I'm at. Um, and so there's chances are the Ravens Steelers game will either have been played or have not been played by the time you're listening to this out there. Um, you know, so we can't say what's going to happen. That said, I, you've already been through the course of the week, Fabs, and whether this game gets played or not, it's had an effect on everything. So um, what are some of your thoughts like coming out of this, um, regardless of whether or not the game actually gets played, and what sort of lessons do you think everybody's got to take coming out of it? Well, first off, uh, you have to sort of expect the unexpected. Yeah. Right? A lot of lineup decisions were made this week kind of blindly. So Gus Edwards was like a perfect example. Gus Edwards is probably – a very popular start this week. And then we heard that, well, the game continues to be postponed nearly a week uh, from Thanksgiving. And then, well, JK Dobbins and Mark Ingram are going to be eligible. And now you hear other reports that they're not even in Pittsburgh. So it's, it's a whirlwind. It's a whirlwind, right? Because there's folks out there who maybe they have Gus Edwards and JK Dobbins, and they're trying to figure out who the heck to start. And we can't even give them any sort of concrete analysis because we're not even sure. I think mean, it looks like it's going to be Gus Edwards. So you have to expect the unexpected and you have to make sure that you have enough depth, uh, especially at the running back position where you're handcuffing folks. I mean, we saw Dalvin Cook get hurt last week. Looks like he's okay. You got to have Alexander Madison. We saw Josh Jacobs get hurt last week. Looks like he's going to be okay. You got to have Devontae Booker. You have to make sure that you have insurance for your top backs. Although I will say this, uh, the handcuff thing hadn't really worked <laughs> a whole lot. Uh, this season, when we saw Dalvin Cook miss a game, Alexander Madison was a disaster. Uh, we've seen Gio Bernard turn in two or three bad performances in a row. Brian Hill was a nightmare last week, despite a really good matchup uh, against Las Vegas. So it doesn't always work. But uh, at this point, you're just looking for warm bodies. I'll tell you this. Frank Gore, what is he, 50 now? I mean, <laughs> this guy is going to be one of the top ads off the waiver wire this week. He had a 53% touch share last week for the Jets. Michael P. Ryan's on injured reserve, and they got the Raiders this week. Yep. So, like, we're digging deep here. There were folks out there, Albert, and I was one of them, and, and I rolled the dice and I lost. Uh, luckily, I won both of my matchups, but I played uh, I played Hinton this past week mm -hmm. at wide receiver thinking, well, maybe I'll get, you know, 14, 15 points from him. Maybe I'll throw a touchdown pass. Uh, it didn't happen. <laughs> but, I mean, like, that's what – like, legitimately, people started a guy who was on the practice squad at wide receiver – because the Broncos were forced to start this kid at quarterback. Like it's unbelievable. So the NFL has always been unpredictable and even more so this season. Yeah. Now I, I mean, I would think like maybe like the Hinton thing was maybe like an example of like where you could kind of trick yourself and get a little too cute. Right. Like being yes. like, you know what yes. I mean? <laughs> like mm -hmm. maybe that's like where it's like, Oh, this sounds like a really good idea. He's playing quarterback. I can put him in at receiver. And then before you know it, it's like, oh, God. Like, yeah, I yeah. kind of outsmarted myself on that yes. one. Yeah. Yeah. No yeah. question about that. I only put him in there where I had multiple flexes and I kind of felt confident that I was going to beat my mm -hmm. opponent. So I'm like, what the hell? 
Yeah. Didn't work. Didn't Roll work out. Dice. Didn't work out. But I mean, heck, I mean, that kid's dream came true. He oh, played yeah. quarterback in the National Football League. Probably learned. I, mean, I don't want to do that again. <laughs> I mean, I tell you what, like, like as far as like things that, as far as things that like you can tell your grandkids about, like that's one of them. Like that's one of them. I mean, there aren't very many things that have never been done before, but uh, you know, Hinton's now got something that's never been done before. That's right. All right, um, we'll jump into our DraftKings segment. That's our DFS segment uh, for the week. Every week here on the podcast. Uh, Fabs gives us his bargains and fades. We, again, are into week 13. That means there are only five weeks left in the NFL season. Fabs, what you got for your bargains and fades for week 13? So at quarterback, we're going to start with Ryan Fitzpatrick, assuming he's starting against the Bengals, mm -hmm. one of his, like, 50 former teams uh, at $6,000. Every week's a revenge game. Every week is a revenge game, right? Like, between <laughs> yeah. him and Frank Gore. So yeah. he, is a, he is a very nice play on DK. Cam Newton was bad last week, but I think he'll bounce back against the Chargers at $5,800. Mitchell Trubisky at $5,400. If there's one team that he's wow. had success against, it's Detroit. How he's about done that? pretty well against them. So like, and I'll Detroit can go there. either way. That's the thing, right? Yeah. Like Detroit, yep. you, know, you never know how, the, how a team's going to react to the interim coach. So, But but that's like the one team that Trubisky's done all right against. And so at $5,400, I'll take a chance on him there. Uh, I don't know what the status of Jonathan Taylor is at this point. Naheem Hines right now looks like the lead guy. Again, it's it's too too soon in the week, but at fifty three hundred dollars, he's worth a look. Damian Harris against the Chargers at fifty two, and then the aforementioned Frank Gore at forty four hundred dollars, also worth a look. And that same game, Nelson Aguilar, I, he didn't have a great game last week. He still gave you you know close to eleven fantasy points, but fifty two hundred dollars against the Jets. Jamison Crowder's another play. He hadn't been good lately, but the Raiders stink against slot receivers, and he's only fifty one hundred dollars. And then T Y Hilton. This is kind of one of those dart throws. He had a good game last week. Historically, and you know this, he dominates Houston. He has had 15-plus points a game in three of his last four. I think he's had more than 26 fantasy points against him five times in his career. Uh, so he's at $4,300. Austin Hooper at 38. Robert Tunyon at 37. And then Kyle Rudolph at 34, although he loses a little bit of his luster now that Adam Thielen uh, is taking off the COVID-19 list. Some fades. I can't believe I'm saying this, but Kyler Murray. Seventy six hundred dollars yeah. against the Rams. He looked good last week. I, I'm not sure if that shoulder's worse off than maybe uh, the Cardinals are letting on, but it's too much. And that defense is very good. And Justin Herbert had his first kind of stinker last week. Uh, Anthony Lynn's play calling was questionable at best, but at sixty nine hundred dollars against the Patriots, that's a fade for me. And then Jared Goff, who I, I'm sure he's a wonderful human being. He's just he's not, not a good fantasy quarterback. I'm fading him, even though the matchup's good. Uh, and Alvin Kamara, Albert. $7,000 for Alvin Kamara, who hasn't finished as a top 20 RB in wow. two straight weeks. I can't play him for that much money right now. Taysom Hill has done what every NFL defense has not been able to do. Stop Alvin Kamara from producing fantasy points. <laughs> it's breaking my heart. I have him in a couple of leagues, but I can't play him right now uh, at that price. Duke Johnson at $5,800 is too much. And then Kenyon Drake had a big game last week. And this is kind of like Kenyon Drake's season. Second half of the season is when he's kind of shined. But Rams... Their defense is nasty good, so $5,700 is a little too much. Uh, Juju against the football team at 58. Uh, I'm going to pass on that. Jacoby Myers at 55. Uh, also passing Christian Kirk at $5,200. And then at tight end, Evan Ingram. He had a big game last week. I don't know what's going to happen again at $4,900. I think there's better bargains out there. Hunter Henry against the Patriots also. A tough one at 48. And Hayden Hurst uh, didn't have a point against the Saints the last time these two teams played. Now, if Julio can't go again, then that makes him a little more attractive. But at $4,000 at this point, 
uh, I'd be fading him. Yeah, two things that I sort of stick out like uh, what you said there. Number one, the taste of hell thing. Like you almost wonder, is it worth like stashing Jameis Winston? You know what I mean? Like if you're playing fantasy and like, you know, maybe like maybe that's something that comes up big for you. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if they if they make a decision to make a switch there. And then the second thing is just kind of uh, like like how – all those guys you were mentioning, like, and we'll get into this with your start, start them and sit them. Like, like how many of those guys are on like weird short weeks now? Like you mentioned like the Steelers right. Washington game, like th- like the Steelers are suddenly on a really strange short week mm-hmm. and, and Washington's going to be coming off of having had big win like and, a long 12, layoff. And, and like 11 days. I mean, it's just the most bizarre thing. So let's get into the stardom sit him now. Fabs, of course, again, the original author of the stardom sit him column on the internet. He does it for us at si.com. Now you can check it out on our website. What you got for us this week. All right. So at quarterback, Ryan Tannehill is a great play this week against Cleveland. They're terrible against quarterbacks on the road. Uh, I mentioned Taysom Hill and Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, Kirk Cousins is a really good play also against the Jaguars. He's had 20 plus points in three of his last four games. And the Jaguars defense is a mess. And then assuming Ben Roethlisberger comes out of uh, this afternoon's game, uh, you know, unscathed, he's a, afternoon football. he's a good play, right? he's a good play <laughs> against the uh, football team. At running back, Raheem Mostert is a tremendous play against Buffalo. David Montgomery against the Lions. I mentioned Naheem Hines. Keep tabs on the stat of Jonathan Taylor. Wayne Gallman's had a touchdown in five straight games. Wayne freaking Gallman. I mean, that's pretty good. So he's an RB2 flex against the Seahawks. I don't know if Miles Gaskin's coming back this week. If he does, I'd start him against the Bengals. And if he can't come back and it's Salvin Ahmed, I play him. And neither one of those guys is back. Well, then, I, I mean, it could be DeAndre Washington. They just don't like Matt Breida there in South Beach. Uh, wide receivers to play. Speaking of South Beach, Devontae Parker's a good play with Ryan Fitzpatrick under center against the Bengals. Uh, Justin Jefferson's been great. Start him. Brandon Cooks. Boy, that Will Fuller news stinks, man. Fantasy owners yeah. who have Fuller or had Fuller and have Deshaun Watson that, that one's a kick in the onions, man. That one's that one's rough. Uh, I don't know if DJ Chark is back this week. If he is, I'd start him against Minnesota. If not, Keelan Cole could be the uh, sleeper there, even though Colin Johnson had a big game last week. And then I mentioned Jamison Crowder. At tight end, TJ Hawkinson, Austin Hooper, Robert Tunyon, and even Johnny Smith. Like, he stunk last week. He mm-hmm. had no points. But Cleveland's really bad against tight end. So uh, I still think he's a back-end tight end one. A quarterback's to sit this week. Now, if Julio Jones comes back for Atlanta, then Matt Ryan's not as horrible a, a, a start, but I, I just don't trust Matt Ryan. Uh, he was awful against the Saints earlier in the season, and that was just a couple of weeks ago. So I'd fade him. Carson Wentz, you know, Carson Wentz had almost 19 points on Monday night, right? He was a, he was a top eight quarterback, and it, it, he was terrible. It was all that, that Hail Mary lucky touchdown at the end of the game. Matthew Stafford's a fade. Jared Goff's a fade for me, and so is Baker Mayfield. That running back, whoever the Atlanta running back is, I'm not playing even if it's girly, the Saints are too good. And I'm sitting Zeke, man. Yep. He's had one good game since Dak got hurt. One. And he's had four games with single-digit points. And he's got the Ravens. I'm not going there if I if I can help it. Uh, Gio has struggled in three straight games. Daryl Henderson, I don't think, is right. I wouldn't play him. Uh, I'd pick up Cam Akers and Zach Moss against the Niners as a fade. Uh, a, a few rookies here at wide receiver. T. Higgins. He had a decent stat line only because he scored a late touchdown in the fourth quarter. I don't like him against Miami. Uh, CeeDee Lamb against the, uh, the Ravens. Jerry Judy against the Chiefs, even with Drew Locke back. Marvin Jones is a fade against Chicago. Christian Kirk is a fade against the Rams at tight end. 
Jared Cooks, I mean, he's he's waiver wire fodder at this point, folks. He's not getting targeted nearly enough with Taysom Hill in her center. Uh, Noah Fant, don't love the matchup against Kansas City. Logan Thomas was a nice DFS play for me last week, but not against Pittsburgh. Uh, and then Jimmy Graham, who has he's the he's the tight end twelve right now, so he's legitimately like a back end starter. Can't play him against the Lions. He's too unreliable. All right, fantastic fabs as always. Uh, especially under the circumstances, such a weird, weird circumstance this week. Very, um, you know, to the point where we're sitting here on Wednesday and talking about week 13 and you know what? Week 12 ain't over yet. It ain't over, man. It ain't <laughs> over. You know, it's crazy. I got to see if I could, uh, find out this data, but how many games, how many fantasy matchups yeah. were, were won and lost based on what happens on a Wednesday afternoon in December. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy. So it he's Michael Fabiano. Always, always, always be sure to check out all of his content at SI.com. And of course, right here on the Albert Breer show. Always appreciate you coming out, Fabs. All right, my brother. Take care. All right. Thanks to Fabs. Thanks to Joe. We're going to wrap it up the same way we always do with the six pack. You guys know how this works. Every week I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, that means I give you a little like. I hit that little heart button and you get an answer here on the podcast. My first question for the week 13 Albert Breer show from Olmito Miranda B. That's at ODM 21. Is it safe to say the Quan Alexander trade was one of the best this year? The defense has really changed with him on the field. Oh, Mito, I would say, yeah, it's a fantastic trade for now. It could be a fantastic trade going forward. They have him under contract for the next couple of years. Um, and, you know, he's at an affordable rate, I would say, um, at $13.4 million for next year, $13.5 million for, for the year after that. So you can keep him at that rate. If you need to get rid of him, they're going to have some cap issues. You can do that. But I also look at the immediate impact and a team that's kind of all in to win right now. And I don't think there's any question that, you know, he's done the job in multiple different areas for the Saints defense. Now, that said, that was a talented defense to begin with. And you look at every level they have players, just like the rest of the roster, like I said off the top of the show. Um, on the defensive line, you know, Trey Hendrickson has played really well. They still have Marcus Davenport up there. At the linebacker level, Demario Davis and um, obviously now Quan Alexander. You look at their secondary with Marshawn Lattimore and Marcus Williams and, uh, and Janoris Jenkins. I think the defense is always going to come around, but getting Quan Alexander, I think, gave him that jolt. So really good pickup by the Saints. Question number two, this is from RB um, at Sports Fiend, but that's Fiend with a three instead of an E. Uh, as a Jets fan, how likely do you see the Jets going on 16 this season? Also, do you see the Jaguars winning another game? on their schedule to help us secure the number one pick. Since I didn't prepare for this question, RB, I'm going to look it up right now. And the Jets schedule, the rest of it at this point, they have the Raiders on Sunday, the Seahawks after that, the Rams, the Browns, and the Patriots. I would actually say this Sunday might be their best chance for a win. If you look at the Jag schedule, conversely, Vikings feels like a loss. Vikings are playing pretty well. They have the Titans after that, that's probably a loss. The Ravens after that, that's probably a loss. Then they finish with the Bears and the Colts. So I think both of these teams are going to be 2-14 and 14 or worse. I would say the Jets The Jets lose on Sunday. They get to 0-16, and Trevor Lawrence is yours. Question number three from not who you think I am. That's at Don Ridenour, our good buddy Don Ridenour. How has Seattle 
How does Seattle have zero positive tests? Is it the weed? <laughs> I don't think it's that. They have it legal there, so players are cool sitting around doing nothing. Interesting theory, Don. I don't think it's that weed's legal and they can sit around and play PlayStation Spark Up all afternoon after they get home from work. I don't think it's anything actually but luck. Like To be honest with you, I, I think a lot of teams have done a good job and... A lot of teams have done a good job and gotten caught up in this, and there are other teams that maybe haven't done as good a job and have gotten lucky. Uh, the area of the country you're in is a factor. There's a lot of different things. And so um, I think Seattle clearly is doing something right, but I, do, does that mean that uh, does that mean that there's they're doing it so much better than the next team? I don't know about that. I think that's kind of hard to say. Question number four from Brian Tarbell. That's at B. Tarbell. Does the NFL care about the safety of its players? It does, Brian. It does because the players are how they make money. And to the extent that the players keep them in a position to make money, it's very important to them. And I talked to somebody who's very connected in all of this on Wednesday morning who said to me that if there's an outbreak with the Steelers as a result of playing the game against the Ravens today, that effectively the season would be over. What does he mean by that? Well, if they can prove on-field transmission, if they can prove that – they created a hazard by clearing the Ravens to play, and then that hazard caused the other team to get it. That changes the dynamic altogether, and I think we're talking about something else globally that, that, that football, that sports are dealing with. To this point, there's been no on-field transmission in any sport that's been documented, and that's pretty remarkable eight months into this. And so so long as you know they the, the on-field, on-field transmission stays – you know, non-existent, I think you're okay. <clears throat> and how do you cut down on the chance of that happening? How do you get to cut down on the chance of people actually getting sick? How do you get cut down on liability? You keep them healthy. So I think beyond just doing something out of the goodness of your heart in this situation, it's in your best business interest to keep everybody as healthy as you possibly can. So I think in this case, Brian, and I know it hasn't historically always been the case, the NFL does care about the safety of its players. Question number five from Alfie Lau. That's at Alfie Lau. How much competitive integrity is left in the NFL when two teams the Seahawks are fighting with for the number one seed were gifted wins, Green Bay at severely depleted San Francisco on a Thursday, and New Orleans at Denver, no explanation needed last Sunday. Anything recent to compare this travesty to? Now, Alfie, I'm assuming you're a Seahawks fan. I don't think that there's anything nefarious going on here. I think it's pretty simple. I think if an outbreak reaches a certain threshold, they're willing to move games. If there's a medical hazard, they're willing to move games. If the virus isn't contained within a team, they're willing to move games. If their team has a football issue, they're going to keep the game where it is. And they have been pretty upfront about this. This was never going to be fair. There were always going to be inequities. And that's what everybody signed up for when they agreed to have a season all the way back in July and August. And so I think this is sort of just kind of the reality of playing through all of this in that what they're doing is they're trying to prevent spread. And if a game is going to lead to more spread, they're not going to play it. And if there's a competitive issue, they are going to play it. It's that simple. And again, it's going to wreak havoc on the playoff picture. And there are probably going to be a handful of teams by the time we get through with this that are going to be able to look at these sorts of things and say, well, if this didn't happen and that didn't happen, then this wouldn't happen. And now we would be there and they would be there. And you'll drive yourself crazy worrying about it. Just sit back, enjoy the football you're getting because this was always destined to be 
like this. This was always going to play out this way. Question number six, final question of the week from John DePriest at John DePriest 790. Appreciate the question, John. Does Bill Belichick retire? I don't think he retires. I think he's got maybe five years left. I think he still enjoys the job. I don't think he's going to coach anywhere else. I think he could go and be an executive somewhere else down the line. But for the purpose of your question, I don't think he's going to coach anywhere else. And I think he still enjoys coaching. Um, I think he still enjoys the day-to-day of it. I think he still likes going to work. And it's so turnkey in New England that he can live the life of an older guy at the same time that he's doing the job. What do I mean by that? Well, if you're somewhere new and you're trying to establish a program, you're going to be working more. If you've been somewhere for 20 years, no matter what line of work it is, things are going to become a little turnkey. Things are going to be a little easier than they were in year one or year two or year three. And that's where he's at right now. Do I think that he would go somewhere and start all over again? I don't. But do I think he likes it enough to keep doing it? Yeah. And once it's over, it's over, you know? And that's the thing you have to kind of, I I think for a lot of people, you know, you look at and say, well, you know, he's getting older and you do the math and all this stuff. Like, well, no, like if you really love doing something as much as Bill Belichick loves coaching football and you know that the, whenever you decide to walk away, that that's it. Like you're not going back. It's probably a little harder to walk away. So I think he's got a good few years left in him. I do think that he would like to see it to the point where the program's in a healthy place. New England's in a healthy place and he leaves it in good shape for someone else, whoever that is. I don't think that he would mind being part of picking whoever the next guy is either. I think that's certainly something to be on the table, whether it's somebody from the family, like a Josh McDaniels or a Bill O'Brien or a Mike, whoever it is, or it's someone from outside the family. Like he has like a tangential connection to like somebody like a Ryan day, who is a, a protege of chip Kelly, who is a good friend of Bill. So, um, certainly I think those things are coming, but not right now. And I think that for now you're looking at somebody who still loves to coach and will coach for at least a little while longer. Appreciate you guys coming out. We appreciate your feedback when you give it to us. So I want you to keep getting your feedback, which is why I keep asking for your feedback. The best place you can give us your feedback is on iTunes. Leave us a rating, leave us a review. That really helps as far as the algorithm goes and all of that different stuff. You can also get to me on my social media. That's a little simpler. You guys know where to find me on Twitter at Albert Breer, on Facebook at Albert R. Breer, on Instagram at Albert underscore Breer. And as you guys know, we got tons of good podcasts coming out of the MMQB staff on three different feeds now, right? Like So every week, you actually get four podcasts on three different feeds. It's great the way that it sets up. You got my show, the Albert Breer Show. You have the Weekside Podcast with Jenny and Connor. And then we got two shows on the MMQB feed, which is Gary's Monday Morning Show and then the Gambling Podcast at the end of the week check all those out hit the subscribe button three times you can can find us that's me that's gary that's connor and jenny on spotify stitcher tune in google play apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows we are there same time next week see you guys then